Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody, along with my co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. Hey, Pettis, we had quite a conversation yesterday about the history of our healthcare system, didn't we? It was one of the most meaningful conversations I've had in a long time. Hi, my friend. It was for me as well, and I hope that we can bring some of the energy that we exhibited yesterday to our audience today, along with the energy that our guests will bring to our show. Oh, I know we will, because our program today is <laughs> our program today is the hidden history of American healthcare: why sickness bankrupts you and makes others insanely rich. Our bold guest today wrote in his most recent book, "Quote." The simple fact is that, were it not for slavery, white supremacy, and the legacy of scientific racism, America would have had a national single-payer health care system in 1915. This statement is not only astounding, but deeply saddening. So much suffering, so many lives lost between then and now. And back then, there was one man who played a key role of injecting our health care system with what he called scientific racism that continues its ugliness to this day. We'll learn more about this person later in the program. What is the solution? A system that will provide extraordinary benefits for us and our economy. Medicare for all, or maybe it should be called Medicare for all of us. We have big things to do. Our guest today is a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 32 books, and America's number one progressive talk show host. His show is syndicated on local for-profit and non-profit stations like KSQD 90.7 FM and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. He's also simulcast on television into nearly 60 million U.S. and Canadian homes. Hello, Tom Hartman. We're delighted to be able to discuss with you today your newest book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Welcome back to Be Bold America. Hey, Jill. Hey, Doc. It's great to be here with you both. <laughs> oh, we're just delighted to have you. And, Tom, uh, we have so much to talk about. Pettis and I made pages of lists of questions. Uh, but first, I want to... Um, you know, reintroduce you to our co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. Uh, Pettis and I spoke for quite a while yesterday about your book, and I was surprised to learn that he had some powerful reactions to it that I think you'll be interested in hearing. So, Pettis, why don't you start now and share them? Sure. Thanks, Jill. Uh, hi, Tom. How you been doing, man? I'm well. How are I'm, you? Uh, really look- I'm doing well. I'm very much looking forward to uh, speaking with you today. Um, Tom, I want you to know that your book is the most personally impactful and profound book that I've read in many years. I urge everyone in our audience to make this a must-read for understanding why we do not have a health care system for all in this country. On a personal note, as someone who is largely identified as being black, I need to share with you that I really struggle with getting through your book because it had such profound meaning to my life. My consternation can be summed up in a single sentence from page 54 of your book, and I quote, Racism is the main reason that America doesn't consider health care a human right and provide it to all citizens, as does every other developed country in the world, close quotes. It seems to me that 
every single time that something goes wrong in this country, it's laid at the feet of black people and other people of color as being the causation. So for me, as I read that passage in particular, I felt another very heavy weight placed on my shoulders as someone who has had to contend with racism for the entirety of my life. But I also want to say to you that you laid another brick in my foundational understanding of institutionalized racism using health care as the example. We'll go into this more fully as we get deeper into the show, but I wanted you to know from the outset the tremendous impact your words have had on me personally. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad my my work was of value. I, I frankly, the stuff about about uh, uh, Frederick Hoffman, uh, which we'll get into, um, was for me when I started researching this book almost two years ago, um, and you know, I thought it was just going to be kind of a normal deep dive into you know wonky healthcare policy, and what I discovered was something completely altogether different that I fully did not expect and was and I'm frankly astonished I'm a you know I've been in these you know, swimming in these political waters my whole entire life and I've been doing a radio show about politics since 2003 I'm well read on these topics and I had no idea how how deeply um, you know white supremacy and racism in the United States had twisted and corrupted and corroded our health care system or prevented us from having one frankly and uh, it it blew my mind. I, I I think I think this and this book and the first book in the series, the hidden history of guns and the Second Amendment, which lays out um, how and why the Second Amendment was written at the time it was, almost exclusively to maintain the slave patrols in Virginia and Georgia, are are two of the I think most consequential books in this series. And um, and 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 you know if, by coincidence or not, I suppose. Um, both deal with this issue of race and how it's distorted uh, American history so badly. I guess the, the, the not coincidence would be that, you know, it, this has been the overlay. Uh, you know, it's referred to as America's original sin, but it has overlaid every aspect of American life from the beginning to this day. Yes, it has. Uh, Jill and I want to kind of walk through the chronology of the key events that you spoke about uh, and illustrated in your book. Uh, so that our listeners will have a solid understanding of how we got here today. But let me ask our first question. Uh, Republicans consider themselves to be originalists when it comes to the Constitution, whenever it's convenient for them to do so. Would you speak about George Washington and John Adams and their thoughts and actions regarding health care? <laughs> well, George Washington mandated the first uh, vaccine. Uh, I think that's fairly widely known now um, when he ordered his troops to be uh, vaccinated for smallpox at Valley Forge in 1776 during the War of Independence. And, um, you know, which arguably saved uh, America. He, he lost more soldiers to smallpox than he did to, uh, to, to battle. And, uh, and that vaccination process put an end to that. Um, he also signed the first legislation that provided uh, health care, food, and housing, and clothing um, for the poor uh, in Washington, D.C., which was the responsibility of the federal government for those people who say, oh, no, that's socialism. George Washington would never do that. 
and uh, and John Adams uh, signed into law the first essentially single payer health care system. It was restricted to a relatively small number of people. Um, this was during the Washington administration. Um, Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of the Treasury, had come up with the, his eleven point plan for American manufacturers to turn America into a great industrial power, and, and it actually stood right up until the nineteen eighties. Um, and did turn us into a great industrial power. And uh, a key to it was having the ability to sell our goods overseas, and thus we had to have a very healthy merchant marine, a civilian force, you know, the civilians who manned the, the, the uh, you know, the well, they weren't ocean liners back then, but, you know, the boats that carried our commerce around the world. And so to keep those people uh, healthy, uh, John Adams signed legislation mandating that they all be part of this single-payer health care system that was uh, largely funded by the federal government to, to keep them healthy. If if, if I'm remembering the, the points, it's been a while since I've read my own book, but if I'm remembering the major points, I hope I touched on the ones that you were referencing or thinking of. You did, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, Jill, do you want to take it? Yes, I just have to chuckle because, you know, George Washington and John Adams, those communists, those socialists. <laughs> How dare they? How dare they money. start our country like that? <laughs> Until I read this um, most recent book in your Hidden History um, of America series, I had no idea, Tom, the astounding role that Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, played in creating universal health care. I love Bismarck's quote that uh, you wrote about. Uh, he said, quote, this man expresses the French view that every French citizen has the right to starve and that the state has no responsibility to hinder him in the exercise of, of this right. Tell us about uh, Bismarck and who he was referencing. Well, he was referencing um, one of his political opponents who was, if I'm remembering the quote right, who was uh, condemning him for being a socialist, for putting into place in 1884 the world's first single-payer health care system. Keep in mind, Otto von Bismarck was no liberal. No. He was... Uh, he was some. He was somebody who enjoyed having people tortured in his presence. He was the. He was. He, he was the leader of not the German Republic, but the German Empire. Right. <laughs> he led people in battle. I mean, he was. He was a total badass. Uh, whatever you know. He, uh, Hitler, you know, viewed him as a, as a role model in some ways. So Bismarck. Um, puts into place a single-payer health care system in 18... Well, first of all, he, he starts out, he's, he, you know, he, it's the German Empire, right, all around the world. And, and so he's like, how do we have the healthiest populace and the healthiest army? And, uh, you know, he's particularly concerned about the army, but the populace is what feeds the army, you know, <laughs> it's where the army comes from. So how do we have the healthiest Germans in the world, or how, be the healthiest country in the world? And he put his, his uh, best thinkers on it, and what they came up with was the best way to produce a, a healthy populace is to have a single-payer health care system where the government pays for everything. It's funded by taxes. And, uh, you know, you don't have layers of bureaucracy. You don't have private corporations. You don't have insurance companies as middlemen who are sucking, you know, their 10, 20, 30 percent off the top. 
And uh, he put that into place. He got a lot of flack for it. They called him socialists. I mean, keep in mind, this was the 1880s. Karl Marx's ideas were really starting to have an impact. Marx published Das Kapital in, I think, 1846 or 1837, but, you know, just before the Civil War. But by this time, Marx was really uh, starting to be taken seriously. The early rumblings of what became the Bolshevik Revolution in 1914 in Russia. And and Bismarck just slapped him down when they called him a socialist. He was having none of it. Good for him. <laughs> I wish we'd be a little more bold about that, too, when we're, the Democrats are called socialists. And Well, that's why I thought it was astounding, because I had never read anything about uh, Bismarck um, caring that much since he was such, as you said, badass. <laughs> you know, he just yeah. So there's another socialist, and it just seems I'm just so tired of this message constantly through history when you try to help people that you're called uh, communist or socialist, and it's just been for uh, decades and decades. Back to you, Pettis. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Tom, we were kind of dancing around a very important historical figure uh, in the in the line of succession for health care. Um, you, you talked at length in your book about Frederick uh, Ludwig Hoffman, who was a German immigrant. He was a statistician and an authority on scientific racism, uh, which has been debunked as a pseudoscience, but it's still parodied in many ways today. Uh, and he also talked about his beliefs about blacks dying out, uh, class issues, and the notion of health care for all. Would you share some of your thoughts with our audience about his role now more than 100 years uh, later in undermining our current system or attempts uh, for creating a system for health care for all today? Sure, sure. I'm, I'm happy to. Um, as I said, this is one of the things that, that boggled my mind when I was doing the research for the book. Um, back in, 18, in the 1880s, uh, the decade that Bismarck put single-payer health care in place in Germany, a young man, 17 years old, with five bucks in his pocket, came from Germany to the United States, Ludwig Hoffman, or Frederick, Frederick Ludwig Hoffman. And um, he was... He was a numbers genius. He was a, a, a math uh, freak. You know, he was a, a savant, kind of. And uh, he was the guy who, he got a job with a Prudential Insurance Company, which was the largest health insurance company in the world at the time. And um, he ran numbers for them. And he was the guy who discovered that there was a, uh, an association between lung cancer and cigarette smoking, and uh, exposure and working in cotton mills and uh, lung fibrosis and um, asbestos exposure and mesothelioma, which is what killed my dad. The asbestos companies, in fact, covered that up. Uh, my dad was exposed in the 1950s. He discovered this in the 1890s. Um, but uh, he co-founded the American Lung Association, uh, which I think is the Easter Seals, or I'm, I'm, I don't remember which one it was, or the Marsha Dimes, or whatever. But it's you know one of those iconic things from our from my childhood. Um, he co-founded that back in the day, and he was really quite famous for this. He also discovered that there was an association between eating diets high in processed foods and cancer. And his book on diet and cancer is still in print in 2021, and he died in 1946. So he was taken very seriously this guy. So in 
so he decided in the 1890s to apply his numbers skill to the, quote, race problem in America. And also, he was doing this on behalf of Prudential because they were starting to think about offering life insurance policies to black people. Uh, until that point, they hadn't. And, and in fact, because of his, quote, research, the Prudential Life Insurance Company was charging black people more than white people for life insurance right up to 1965. I mean, this is like recent stuff. And there's also this, you know, affects how Medicare came about. So anyhow, he he did the numbers. And what he found, you know, sure enough, uh, no surprise, black people were dying at a a higher rate than white people. Their lifespans were not as long, and they were more likely to get sick and and get consequentially sick um, when they did get sick. And keep in mind, this was in the 1890s. This this was, uh, you know, we had legal apartheid in the United States. We were only 40 years out from, from the end of slavery. Um, black poverty was massive. Um, uh, you know, I mean, these with an understanding of institutional racism that we have today, uh, which, you know, you would think that he would have understood, but he clearly didn't. He had married the Southern Belle from Georgia, and her family was all plantation and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the conclusion that he came to was that number one, Prudential should charge more for life insurance. Number two, that that uh, blacks, African Americans, were uh, genetically inferior to whites, and that was the reason why um, uh, black people were dying at a, at a higher rate and getting sicker. And number three, that because of that genetic inferiority, that he he just con- he didn't just conclude this in a vacuum. I mean, this is kind of pretty much widespread, a widespread belief by white people in the United States. And, uh, you know, right, well, I mean, there are still white supremacists who will claim this today. Um, but therefore, if we simply denied black people health care, in a couple of generations, the, the black race would die out and it would solve the race problem in America. And he just came right out and said it. And this became, he, and, and he was, he was celebrated for this. He wrote this book in 1896 titled Race, Traits, and Tendencies of the American Negro. Um, I, I found a copy of it uh, in an old you know, used bookstore and, um, and read it. It blew my mind. Um, but it, but it, was, it, was a, it was a major international bestseller. He testified before Congress. He traveled around the country. He met with governors and state legislators. He, he uh, uh, you know, pitching this thing. And this is why in 1914, when Teddy Roosevelt was running for re-election on his Square Deal program, which included a single-payer health care system modeled on Bismarck's, um, the blowback that he got from white people was, uh, but wait a minute, we don't want black people to have health care. You know, (laughs) that doesn't go with the plan. And so Teddy had to back off. And then in 36, when Franklin Roosevelt pitched, uh, you know, a national health care program, again, the blowback was, but what about the black people? We don't want them to have this. Same thing in 1947, when Harry Truman proposed, actually got a proposal before Congress for a single-payer health care system. He got shot down again by the white racists in the South, it largely, although, you know, there were white racists all over the country who didn't want black people to have access to this. And uh, in 1961, when John Kennedy proposed it, again, it was white Southerners who shot it down. And in 65, when Lyndon Johnson said, okay, let's just give health care, single-payer health care to everybody over 65, we'll call it Medicare, um, again, the Southern senators came and said, wait a minute, uh, if you're going to have uh, elderly black people coming into our hospitals, you got to set a bar that's high enough that they can't jump over it to get in. So that what they worked out was this 20% gap in Medicare is there 
to provide a barrier to poor black peoples because they would know that they would have to cough up the 20% when they got to the hospital to keep them out of the hospitals. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just a grim story any way you tell it, but that's, that's what it is. Oh, wow. Do you have a follow-up? Do you have a follow-up, Pettis? Uh, well, no, I was just saying that, you know, that was one of the other points that was really devastating as I looked at this institutionalized process uh, for limiting who gets health care that's still impacting us today. Oh, let me take it a step farther. There are 12 states in the United States that turned down Barack Obama's offer of expanding Medicaid, which goes to people who make more than $3,000 a year and less than $11,000 a year. It's a, it varies from state to state, but broadly it's in that range. Um, there are 12 states that said, no, we don't want the money, even though the federal government paid 90% of it, and will today, even today. And those 12 states are all former slave states. Hmm. Yeah, with significant black population and white control of the states. It's still going on. Well, you touched, Tom, on um, uh, FDR, and and, uh, uh, in your book you talked about FDR and Edwin Witt set off a proverbial bomb with the Republicans uh, when they referenced the need to study the possibility, among other things, health insurance, and then just a bomb went off in the Capitol with the Republicans. Just, you know, can you take a a few minutes or a minute to tell us what? The Republicans' response was to that. I'm sorry, I, I missed the the first couple. Oh, of words it was of your F- sentence, FDR and Edwin uh, Witt. I think set off just a bomb when FDR was talking about the need to study the possibility, uh, among other things, health insurance. The Republicans just went nuts about that. Yeah, well, that was that was uh, as I recall. I, I'm, I I don't recall that specific. Um, Incident. I'm, I'm sorry to have to look. It's you know, like I said, it's been a while since I read my own book, um, and, and, and you know some of the stories in there are are, are, are not things that I knew before. But um, I'm guessing I'm, I'm I'm working on a book on neoliberalism right now, and I'm reading F. A. Hayek, and um, he's laying out this uh, hypothesis that the Nazis came to power because Germany had a single-payer health care system starting in 1884, that that socialism was the foundation for Nazism. The Republicans say that to this day. Rand Paul has recently said that. And and so I'm, I'm guessing, if I'm remembering correctly, that um, the Republicans were all over, you know, uh, offering everybody health insurance is just another form of socialism, and it'll, and it'll lead to uh, terrible things like Hitler has done. Am right. I remembering correctly? Right. Well, it's just they, they again, accused uh, FDR of secretly trying to foist compulsory health care, health insurance on the country. And they've they created a deluge of telegrams um, from all parts oh, yeah. of the country protesting against that nef- nefarious plot to give yeah, health insurance. That, yeah. And, and it wasn't just Republicans. I mean, a, a lot of that came out of uh, organized medicine as well. I mean, you know, the AMA was all white. The hospitals were all white. Um, and, uh, you know, there was this concern, again, that, that if everybody in America got anything, that meant that black people got a piece of it. And so... Oh, you know. boy. Uh, I'm just going to break right now and say you're listening to our bold guest, Tom Hartman, on KSQD's Be Bold America. 
Many Voices, One Station. In addition, if you'd like to be added to our news group, you may text Be Bold America to 22828. Text Be Bold America to 22828. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Have a world class healthcare system? Yet, while we spend the most of any advanced nation in the world to get care, more than $10,000 a year per person, we get the worst results. No surprise, then, that the Medicare for All idea is now backed by 85% of Democrats, 66% of independents, and get this, 52% of Republicans. So why isn't Congress responding to this overwhelming public demand for universal coverage? I suspect that one big reason for Washington's big yawn over the people's plea for sweeping reform is that our lawmakers do not personally feel the financial pain and emotional distress that are inflicted on millions of regular Americans by a system built on private greed. After all, their health needs are met by a double dose of the socialistic care that they so furiously deny to our families. First, they're given big taxpayer subsidies to cover the cost of their insurance, with you and me paying about 72% of the price. But second, there's a secretive medical center located right in the U.S. Capitol building that provides a full-blown system of, shh, healthcare socialism to our governing elites. Called the OAP, Office of the Attending Physician, it provides a complete range of free medical service for lawmakers. No appointment needed and no waiting. They walk in and doctors, nurses, technicians, pharmacists, and other professionals tend to them right away. No need to show an insurance card and they never get a bill. But they do get what a former OAP staffer calls the best health care on the planet. Thus, members feel no urgency to restructure a system that's working beautifully. For them, this is Jim Hightower saying, so to get good care for all of us, we might start by taking away the pampered care that lawmakers have awarded to themselves. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Tom Hartman. Listen to his number one progressive talk show Monday through Friday right here on KSQD 90.7 FM, also on Sirius XM Radio, Free Speech TV, and on the Tom Hartman app, which is how I listen to him every day. Our topic is the hidden history of American health care, why sickness bankrupts you and makes others insanely rich. So, Tom, um, how has America's health deteriorated since Ronald Reagan played a role in, and did Ronald Reagan play a role in it, that even today, one in five of us have poorer health and hefty health care bills? Yeah, this this is um, in you know Reagan, uh, of course, uh, not only opposed any kind of healthcare single payer healthcare program, but before he was president, when he was governor of California, and uh, in fact, I think this might have even been before he was governor of California. This was 1964. Um, you know, when they when they were putting together maybe early 65 when they were putting together the the Medicare legislation. He recorded a 33 LP uh, long play album uh, record uh, that for the American Medical Association for the AMA, talking about how um, Medicare uh, was socialized medicine, and it was the camel's nose under the tent that would turn America into the Soviet Union. And that uh, he wrapped it up by saying, someday, you know, Americans will look back, and or someday, you know, those of us old enough to remember will look back and tell the young folks about, that, you know, what it was like when America was free. And uh, of course, you know, his 
he was not of the generation to say that about Social Security, but that was the same argument that was made in 1933 against Social Security. And and to this day, I mean, a lot of Republicans consider both these programs socialism. George W. Bush uh, campaigned in 1978 for Congress in Texas on the platform of privatizing Social Security and Medicare. And um, so, so there's that. Um, you know, you've got that opposition. But then also, Reagan introduced neoliberalism to America. This whole brand new economic and political system, largely an economic system, but it it it, it is enforced politically of, um, you know, so-called free market capitalism, um, tolerating monopolies and, and, uh, and basically allowing big business and billionaires to, to run the nation's politics. And the consequence of that is that the middle class has been gutted. You know, we've gone from a third of Americans being represented by unions and having good jobs with health care and pensions and, and uh, you know, and all that kind of thing in 1980 when Reagan came into office to about 6% today of the private workforce. And as a result, wages have stagnated over all these years while medical costs have exploded. And uh, and as a consequence of that, the spending that American families uh, do on housing, on clothes, on uh, transportation, on pretty much everything else, vacations, has uh, decreased as health care expenses have sucked up more and more of our money. Um, and then, of course, you've got, you know, uh, probably... I don't recall the number, but, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 million Americans who are are deeply underinsured. They've got, you know, half of American families can't deal with the $1,000 expense. Um, and, uh, and I believe it's 60% of American families can't deal with a $400 expense, and yet most people have health insurance policies with $5,000 deductibles or in that neighborhood. So people aren't using what health insurance they have because it's unaffordable and and very often it doesn't cover things that they have or networks that they have and all of this is just a perfect storm it, it has uh, decreased the lifespan of americans slightly it has dramatically increased chronic diseases and things like obesity and diabetes heart disease um, these are the just clear consequences of the inequality uh, and the uh, and the stagnation and even reversal uh, to a large extent of uh, of the bottom 90% in America the top 1% have done just fine thank you very much they've they've taken at least 10 trillion dollars out of the pockets of working class people since since the 1980s um, and 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 stuffed it into their own money bins but that's that's where we're at oh boy uh, Pettis, uh, you were going to ask Tom about medicare advantage yes i was I'm just getting ready to do that. Good. Uh, Tom, could you talk to us about uh, Medicare Advantage as a uh, a, a trillion-dollar boondoggle uh, and how it can be used by insurance companies to uh, kill off Medicare for all? And while you're at it, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the gap in the Medicare uh, system and how that's used. You touched on it a little bit a few minutes ago. Yeah. Well, with regular Medicare, first of all, Medicare has been around since 1966, and um, Medicare Advantage came along in 2003, if I'm remembering correctly. And maybe it was 2005, but it was one or the other. And, uh, you know, it was George W. Bush's brainchild as a way of privatizing Medicare. Um, when Medicare was originally put into place, there was this 20% gap, which I mentioned earlier, and that 
and the the idea to that private health insurance companies would fill that gap uh, was also, I mean, you know, that was also part of the motivation for it was the health insurance company or the insurance companies wanted to have a you know an opportunity to make some money here. But the Medigap insurance, so if you if you uh, go on regular Medicare, you know, parts A, B, and D, um, and, you know, it, it costs you 100 and some odd dollars a month. I think it's $140 a month on average. Um, and, and they take it out of your Social Security, or they can. And then you also have to buy a, a, a health insurance policy, a Medigap policy that fills in that 20%. And those can be anywhere from, you know, 100 to even a couple hundred dollars a month, depending on the quality of the policy that you get. And But they're heavily regulated. They can't mess with you. They can't refuse to cover things. They can't talk about preexisting conditions. You could be sick as a dog when you turn 65 and sign up for them. And, you know, on your absolute last legs, and they still have to fully cover you for, you know, without, increase, without jacking up the, the price. So in 2003 or five, whichever it was, uh, you've, you've got the book there. Maybe you can, if, if you know, just you know, correct me. But um, in the early 2000s, George W. Bush had this uh, Medicare, um, uh, what would you call it, uh, optimization <laughs> improvement. Um, and what they did was they took Medicare Part C, which had been around forever, um, but was almost never used, which was, uh, it was kind of a, a little carve-out in Medicare so that private insurance policies could be written for some Medicare recipients, and, um, but on a very limited basis in a very narrow, uh, narrowly confined area. Sort of like, you know, there's some people who don't get Social Security because they're certain types of federal employees. Uh, if you work in the railroads, for example, you pay into the railroad pension fund and Social Security. So there's these, these little carve-outs in both Social Security and Medicare, and this was one in Medicare. Uh, and what George Bush did is he turned that carve out into a super highway and um, said private health insurance companies can come in, they can offer these private policies. They are not regulated the way that Medigap policies are, so they can screw with you. They can say you can only go in in network. You can, uh, if, uh, I mean, it's just, they, they, they do these two practices called cherry picking and lemon dropping. Um, cherry picking is they offer, uh, you know, goodies that would attract, in particular, healthy people like gym memberships and things. Um, and, you know, trying to bring in the healthy people when they turn 65. But then as people get into their 70s and, and 80s and start getting more expensive, then they do. Then they shift to what's called lemon dropping, which is where they just basically make life miserable for people with Medicare Advantage to the point that uh, there was just a study that was published last week that found that um, the majority of people who drop Medicare Advantage and return to regular Medicare are people in the last year of their life. And that's because in the last year, the last year of life is typically the most expensive of all the years of your life. And uh, they find themselves doing battle with their insurance companies at such an intense level that it's just not worth the frustration. And so they go back to Medicare. Um, but the problem is that if you sign up for a Medicare Advantage policy when you turn 65 and then you decide when you're 66 or 67 or a little bit older that you want to, you don't want to deal with the insurance company telling you that you've got to get pre-approval for everything and you've got to pay co-pays and you've got to do this and that and the other thing, all this BS that goes with Medicare Advantage. If you decide to go back to regular Medicare, now the companies that are offering the Medigap policies, which are typically the same companies that are offering the Advantage policies now, 
those companies now can refuse to insure you if you have uh, pre-existing conditions. And so a lot of people, when uh, some people, when they try to go back to regular Medicare, they just can't buy a Medigap policy any longer. And so uh, they get stuck with that 20% of the hospital bills, and, it, you know, it just it can devastate people financially. I had a friend who, uh, in New York City, I write about him in the book, in fact, because it happened. This all happened as I was writing the book. Um, who uh, turned sixty-five, went online to sign up for Medicare, got hopelessly confused, and just said, "You know, I'll do this later." A um, couple months later, he was having trouble urinating. He went to the doctor. Uh, they did a blood test and a and a, and a prostate exam, and, and uh, the P- his PSA was like in the hundreds. It was so high that the doc said, "You know, you you not only have prostate cancer; it's probably already burst outside of your prostate, and you know we've got to deal with this aggressively." And so, um, as he was leaving, this was one of these kind of urgent care centers that was owned by a big hospital chain, which offered their own Medicare Advantage plans. And um, as he was leaving, the receptionist signed him up for a Medicare Advantage plan with his, with his company. So then he does his research and finds that the best prostate cancer docs in the in the world are Sloan uh, Kettering Memorial Cancer Hospital Institute in New York City, right, literally right down the road from where he lived. And so he made an appointment with them, said, I've got Medicare. They were cool. Come on in. Uh, he shows up, and uh, you know, a month later, and he's got his Medicare Advantage card, and they're like, oh, this isn't Medicare. This is private insurance. It's called Medicare Advantage, but it's private insurance, uh, and we are not in their network. So they will not pay, pay us. So you're going to have to pay the whole bill yourself. And it turns out that none of the Medicare Advantage plans pay for Sloan Kettering because they're, they're, they're the top one, you know, and they're also a little more expensive. And uh, so, you know, forewarned is forearmed. But now, you know, I mean, um, with the, all these this avalanche of advertising, and you'll see it coming again this fall because the sign-up period uh, opens the second week of October, I think, or the first week. Um, so pretty soon you're going to start seeing Joe Namath again, you know, every single day pitching this. So now about 40 percent, it was it was 33 percent, I think, or 34 percent when I was writing the book but uh, two years ago. But just a month or so ago, um, I saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal that said that it's now 40 percent of Americans who think they're on Medicare actually have private uh, Medicare Advantage plans. Amazing. It is. It's terrible. The system is designed uh, to let us die, I guess. (laughs) Well, it's designed to take as much money out of our pockets uh, and and the system as possible before we die. I mean, let's say it what it is. Well, Tom, also, while you were just talking there um, about Medicare Advantage, I just flashed back to about a week ago on your program. You were... Interviewing a doctor, I think her name was um, Mal- Malinow, Anna Malinow, about mm-hmm. direct contracting entities, another yeah. plot to privatize um, uh, Medicare. You know, Medicare Advantage is a scheme to privatize Medicare, and then now I guess they have a new scheme to uh, privatize Medicare with direct contracting entities where they lure doctors with more money and then you sign up with that doctor and then all of a sudden you're enrolled can you do you remember um i do oh good do. And this was this was new to me <laughs> and i thought i wrote the book yeah it was new to me too um, and i thought while you were talking there i thought wait a minute we need to bring this up 
Yeah, this is just rolled out in the last year, as far as I can tell. And, and what it is is basically these Medicare Advantage providers cut deals with doctors. And under this new rule that was put into place by the Trump administration, your doctor can sign you up, can take you off Medicare and sign you up for Medicare Advantage without even telling you. And... Uh, it can be a real challenge to get out from underneath it. And the doctors are spiffed by the insurance companies for doing it. So they're they're doing everything they can to put a nail in the coffin of Medicare uh, before uh, anybody talks about taking. And then, you know, once they've got 60, 70% of Americans on, on Medicare Advantage, then they'll, they'll suddenly come out and say, hey, we just decided we love this Medicare for All program. Oh, gosh. Well, that's in the role of Republicans trying to privatize everything. <laughs> Everything. Yep. Um, yep. And then another um, uh, topic to move to, an- another insanely rich CEO was Dollar Bill McGuire, who was uh, United Healthcare CEO um, previously, who didn't make any money healing anyone. Um, no doubt the current CEO is following in Dollar Bill's footsteps. And, you know, nearly four months ago, I had open heart surgery. <laughs> And I um, I learned that my retirement program, I was very lucky that, you know, everything was paid for and I, I came out very well. And But my retirement program uh, picked United Healthcare as my coverage. And then I learned, too, uh, that they picked Medicare Advantage. So that's another way that people are enrolled in these things without having any control over it. And while I was going through this adventure, I just thought about, one, how fortunate I was, but that also that the CEO and the stockholders were making money off of people's suffering. And that's what the healthcare system is, um, basically, is privatizing healthcare to make money off of people's suffering, and it's just so immoral. Um, Thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, Dollar Bill McGuire made $1.6 billion out of, out of United Healthcare, and a lot of that was stock options, and, and you can't really quite criticize him for that. He helped grow the company. Um, but he helped grow the company by saying, no, we're not going to pay for your daughter's liver transplant plant. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he was succeeded by Stephen J. Hemsley, who um, uh, made something like $700 million. And, you know, when you've got a health insurance company where the CEO is taking a billion dollars out, you know you've got a distorted system. Uh, you know, I, I just don't know how to say it other than that. Yeah, yeah, there, there are literally hundreds of uh, executives across the six largest health insurance companies who make over a million dollars a year. It's just immoral, uh, in my mind, to make money off of people's surgeries and suffering and pain. And So you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. You also may listen online, um, live at ksqd.org. Want a friend to hear this interview? Ask them to sign up for a free subscription through their favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, Google, Spotify, Radio Public, and many others, to hear this outstanding interview with Tom Hartman. My, I'm your host, Jill Cody. 
Hello, K-Squid listeners. I'm Todd Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program. Heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM. Weekdays at 4 p.m. That's Progressive Talking Conversation with me, Tom Hartman. Weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you're it. Today, our topic is the hidden history of American healthcare why sickness bankrupts you and makes others insanely rich. And we're speaking with Tom Hartman, who we heard on our break, uh, who is a four time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times best author of 32 books, and his number one progressive talk show host. And, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm looking at all the questions that we have, but I did want to bring out because I think people don't really realize uh, I have followed Rick Scott's career and he's plainly a crook. <laughs> oh yeah. He, he yeah took, the former governor of Florida. Yeah. Well, from Florida. Right. He, he took he, the he, fifth. He was, Go he ahead. Was, his company, when he was CEO of his, co- of his health uh, uh, hospital chain, uh, he was convicted. His company was convicted of the largest Medicare fraud in the history of America. Yes. You know, Bilkey took the fifth 78 times. <laughs> When they were questioning him, um, and then he became governor of Florida, and now he's a senator in Congress. How on earth does something like this happen, and why isn't he in prison? And just briefly tell us, uh, before we go into our keep, stop, start, you know, briefly tell us about Charlene Dill's story. Powerful story. Charlene Dill was uh, a young woman. She was in her early 30s in Florida. Uh, with three kids, um, and what's particularly haunting for me is I have a photo of her and her kids, mm-hmm. and, and her son looks so much like my son looked when he was the same age that uh, it shocked me. I thought I was looking at a picture of my own son. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was, uh, you know, a single mom, and she had a heart condition that uh, she'd apparently been born with and that was easily controlled by medication. And, uh, but because Rick Scott did not expand Medicaid in Florida, and to this day it hasn't been expanded. It's one of those 12 former slave states. Um, because he didn't expand Medicaid in that state, uh, she was cutting her pills in half and skipping pills uh, because she couldn't afford them. And she was working three jobs. Um, and her third job was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And she was doing that one evening uh, when she just, you know, dropped dead of a heart attack. Uh, because she'd been skipping her medications. And, and so I titled that chapter, Rick Scott Killed Charlene Dill, um, because he was the governor and he was the one who chose not to take the, the Obamacare money and expand Medicaid to uh, the working poor in Florida. And, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis is following on in that tradition. And, and you know, you ask, you know, how could a guy who, you know, ran a company that was convicted of the largest Medicare fraud in history, who, who took the fifth 76 times, uh, who walked away with, you know, $100 million bucks or thereabouts, a big pile of cash, used that, you know, and then used that money to run for political office, um, how could he become the, the United States senator? Well, you know, I mean, that's the perfect resume for a, a Republican. <laughs> Is he corrupt? Yeah. Yeah. Thumbs up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, well, uh, it's sad, but it's, it, it, it's unfortunately, I can't, I can't say it's not true. I mean, I've, I've been running a contest on my radio show since 2003. Anybody who can name one piece of legislation that was 
originally written by Republicans, that was passed by a majority of Republicans in the House and Senate, and that was signed into law by a Republican president. One piece of legislation in the last 40 years whose principal beneficiary is average working people or poor people, I would give them their choice of any of my books autographed by me. Or, you know, I've offered other prizes, too, over the years. Nobody's ever won that prize. Nobody ever will. Nobody ever will. They've given up on legislating. They've given up on writing bills. They've given up on governing. You know, before well, we... Go ahead. Except when they're in power, and then they're all about tax cuts. Well, that's right. That's <laughs> that's and isn't that a form of socialism? Socialism for the rich. <laughs> yeah, I think you could make that argument. <laughs> um, uh, Pettis, do you have before we go into keep, stop, start, and do you have any quick uh, follow up on our talk with Tom? Uh, I do. Um, you know, the whole system is designed to support itself. Right, um, with the people that get into office who are paid by the insurance companies and the healthcare industry to uh, make sure that legislation doesn't come that's harmful. But you also speak in your book about how we can create a system uh, for healthcare or Medicare for all. Um, can you take a quick minute to describe that? Are you are you talking about doing what Canada did? Because there's a couple of different solutions out from the book. Several examples of how we could do this. Yeah. I I think the most likely way that we will get this uh, done here in this country is uh, at the state level, which is what Canada did. They, they, uh, Tommy, Tommy Douglas, the uh, the premier of Saskatchewan back in the day in the 60s, um, who's every year rated as the, the number one favorite person in all of Canada. He's been dead for quite some time. He's Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland's uh, grandfather, actually. Um, he passed this in that particular province, and the provinces around it were so uh, amazed by how well it worked that they were like, hey, we want that. And so pretty soon Alberta got it, and British Columbia got it, and, you know, and it just spread across Canada over the course of about a decade. And, and, and then the federal government jumped in and said, okay, we'll backstop you guys, and we'll provide a exchange mechanism for, you know, if somebody in Saskatchewan, from Saskatchewan, gets sick in Ontario, then Ontario can pay for it, and then we'll work out the back-end, you know, reimbursement from Saskatchewan. And so, and Bernie actually talked about this on my program like 10 years ago. He, he said I, that he thought this, this is how it would come to America. And so Vermont and California have both passed legislation um, uh, authorizing single-payer health care systems in their states, both of them. And uh, the, the one in, in uh, Vermont was signed into, into law by, uh, by the governor. But uh, the problem that they have is that because LBJ was worried back in 65 that if they just gave Medicare money to southern states, the southern states might use that money to treat white people and refuse to treat black people. And so there's a kind of an audit trail on Medicare money and on Medicaid money also that um, if you can't maintain it exactly the way the law lays it out, the money just goes to zero. It vanishes. And so when Vermont tried to do their single payer, they ran up against this and discovered that if they did single payer in Vermont, then they would have lost billions every year in Medicare and Medicaid money. All that money coming into the state would just cease and they would have to pick up those expenses themselves, which would have broken the state. So the movement is to tell senators and uh, members of Congress to pass, and, and these are introduced every year, 
um, uh, to pass a waiver, a state-based waiver, so that individual state, uh, Medicare, Medicaid waiver, so that states can do single-payer health insurance. And uh, eventually we'll get that thing passed. And, and I think, you know, if, if California and Vermont do it, um, and it works, and of course it will, every other country in the world has done it pretty much, for the developed country, then uh, it, it will spread. So, Tom, uh, that was just a perfect segue to go into uh, Keep, Stop, Start, which is what can listeners um, do to advance this um, effort? What can listeners keep doing, stop doing, and start doing? Obviously, they can start uh, contacting their uh, federal representatives to pass that state waiver. What else can um, listeners do? Well, I, I think, you know, talking about it, uh, uh, sharing these stories that you and I have been talking about uh, today with with friends and family, um, uh, warning people about Medicare Advantage and the other efforts to privatize Medicare. Um, I, I think it's just, you know, we need a, an informed and educated populace. And, and these are issues that are literally never discussed in the mainstream media. I mean, just never discussed. I, I've never seen a single program on any uh, television network, even MSNBC, about, you know, for example, the Medicare Advantage scam um, or, or the, the drug pricing scams, because uh, the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies are major sources of advertising revenue for these networks. So, you know, we've that, that responsibility for educating people falls to all the rest of us. And um, what can listeners stop doing? Is there something that they that you think that they're thinking about or doing now that's getting in the way of Medicare for All? Um, other than having, you know, if you've signed up for Medicare Advantage, check out your alternatives very quickly. Good point. Um, yeah, but other than that, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head. Well, also, it, we talked earlier, too, I guess this is more of a, of a start as well, is be aware of these uh, uh, DCEs. What, what were they called yeah. again, the direct contracting yeah. entities, that they could really uh, pri- privatize Medicare. We, we might not even know what's happening. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, if you get a letter from your doctor telling, if you're over 65 and on Medicare, on regular Medicare, and you get a letter from your doctor saying that um, he's going to change how he gets reimbursed or she gets reimbursed by uh, the health insurance company. Um, you know, that's not just a red flag. That's a 4th of July fireworks display. Pay very careful attention to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, I didn't realize uh, I have a little Medicare card in my wallet, and I didn't really myself realize till I had this surgery that I'm in Medicare Advantage even though I have that Medicare card. <laughs> so mm. I, I think what you said was is that um, people need to take a look that are in that age group uh, oh, yeah. and really clearly understand what they're in. Yeah, I've, I've been on Medicare. I'm 70. I've been on Medicare for five years now, and I've had back surgery. Uh, I mean, it's just wonderful. Regular Medicare with the Medigap policy, you know, you never pay a penny. Nothing has to be pre-approved. There's no song and dance. There's no BS from the doctors. But, you know, whatever you need, you just get it gets taken care of. And that's what we need. That's that's what every other con- developed country in the world has. 
And uh, I don't know if you went through having to have, you know, your insurance company approve things or if you ended up stuck with copays and deductibles or not. If you didn't, you have a pretty good policy. And there are some good Medicare Advantage policies out there, at least not terrible ones. They tend to be the ones that are run by the nonprofits, you know, the, the HMOs. Um, but the ones that are run by the big insurance companies can be a minefield. Well, and also, I think people need, there's a basic question people have to decide for themselves. Is health care a right and, or a privilege? Because that's the struggle exactly. right now. And, if it's, and I don't see how we can pursue happiness without being healthy. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, which side of, of the, I guess, the f- philosophy are you on? Is, is health care a right or a privilege? Yeah, and this, uh, and I think you know, I mean, the Constitution talks about in the preamble, uh, you know, this is for the for the general welfare of the people, and the the Declaration of Independence, of course, uh, referenced life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and uh, frankly, none of those things are available to you if you're if you're sick. Um, you know, Frank, Franklin Roosevelt had made this point: if you're sick, you're not free. Uh, you know, if you're unemployed, you're not free. If you are homeless, you are not free. Um, but in this context, if you're sick, you're not free. And and uh, you know, we need to we need to help people uh, get get access to healthcare. <laughs> and, oh, and you know, without breaking the bank. I'm so glad you brought up the freedom point. You know, and what FDR said because it really is. Um, uh, part of that. Tom, we so enjoyed this conversation. I wish we had more time with you. Thank you for being our bold and impressive guest and, and um, being with our program again. We know you've got a jammed calendar, and we're just delighted you made time for us tonight. Well, thank you, Jill, and thank you, Pettis. It was uh, nice talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Up next on Sunday, October 10th at 5 p.m. will be the Decarbonization Imperative with Dr. Michael Lennox. Dr. Lennox is the Taylor Murphy Professor of Business Administration at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. He's also Senior Associate Dean and Chief Strategy Officer. He's the co-author of Can Business Save the Earth? Innovating Our Way to Sustainability. He'll be here to discuss his new book, The Decarbonization Imperative, Transforming the Global Economy by 2050. In addition, Pettis will have a well-deserved break because I'll have a special co-host with me for this interview, Dr. Richard Nothinius. Dr. Nothinius was a chapter author in my book, Climate Abandon, and is an expert on the Garrett relation. He has strong opinions on unacknowledged energy and economic constraints, so sparks could fly. So join us on Sunday, October 10th at 5 p.m. to learn about the decarbonization imperative. Or you may catch up on this interview later with our Be Bold America podcast found on your favorite podcast platform. I also want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineer, Emily Donham, and to our program director, Howard Feldstein. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Faith Matters with Seth Shapiro. My name is Jill Cody. And I'm here with Dr. Pettis Perry. Thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep stop start.